This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. We're less than three weeks away from the presidential election and Americans appear more divided politically than ever before. The country's still in the grip of a deadly pandemic and legislation to help people hardest hit by the economic crisis is stuck in Congress. Meanwhile, President Trump has declined to promise a peaceful transition of power. You're going to hear a conversation with two veterans of previous administrations, Andrew Card, who is Chief of Staff for President George W. Bush, and Peter Rouse, who is a Counselor and Interim Chief of Staff to President Barack Obama. Card and Rouse were guest speakers this week at the Lester N. Mandel Endowed Distinguished Lecture Series hosted by the University of Central Florida. We spoke on Zoom about how previous administrations responded to crises, including September 11th. Florida is a purple state, right? It's a big prize in the road to the White House. And in 2016, the margin for President Trump over former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was just over 1%, so a very close-fought and close-won election. This year is shaping up to be also a very close-fought election, and the I-4 corridor is pivotal in this swing state. So I want to ask you both about policy and style of governance for each of the candidates. And Andrew Carter, I want to start with you. What do you see as President Trump's biggest assets? I am not a big Trump fan, but I agree with a lot of his policies. But his probably his biggest asset is that he is a phenomenal communicator and marketer, and he is uh, he's able to get the stage, keep the stage, and prevent other people from standing on it. So he dominates the conversation, and almost no one can talk about politics without talking about Donald Trump. And in terms of he his ability to communicate with people, he really captured uh, a a segment of America that felt that they were being left behind, and he has become their champion, and I still think he plays on that. So I would say that he's the nominee of the Republican Party, but he really has changed it to the Trump Party more than the Republican Party, and so his biggest asset is that he has a larger-than-life personality, and it dominates... uh, every aspect of his leadership responsibility, whether it's public policy, communications, or explaining things, it's it's just a bigger than life personality. So many policy discussions end up being uh, more captured by his personality than by those who have worked hard on the policy. That's the biggest change. And he has a tremendous following. So um, he, he has managed to he the digital divide for him was not much of a divide. Peter and I grew up and we were communicating not in zeros and one. We actually used pencils and papers and, and long sentences. But today's world requires us to all uh, communicate without thinking about our words. And I think that's what gets us in trouble. Do you think that that is a permanent change wrought on the party or is that a a sort of a one president change to the Republican Party? I think I think President Trump has changed the nature of our democracy. Uh, and, and I'm not going to say that's necessarily for the better, but I think that he has been an immediate gratification injection into expectations. And he has uh, very much mastered the ability to communicate. And that... You know, democracy was founded such that they believe that there should be representatives. We're a republic, so democracy picks the people who then represent us, and we're in a republic. And John Adams and all the way back to 
beginning of our of, of democracy in Greece said the greatest threat to democracy was mob rule. Uh, Donald, Donald Trump has actually brought the mob inside the rule because he is kind of a digital communicator in such a way that he doesn't go through representatives. And so he's got a tremendous following, probably the biggest following in the history of, of politics or democracy. And I think that's the big change that we've seen. And I don't think it's going to go away. So I do think the nature of our democracy is not what it was in 2016. Uh, Peter Rouse, I wonder if I could bring you into this conversation. What, what do you see as the president's biggest asset leading into this election? I uh, I think Andy has uh, you know covered it pretty well there that he uh, he is uh, President Trump is certainly a unique figure in American politics. Uh, he's changed the nature of American politics uh, in a significant way, I think, and it uh, also raises some questions about uh, you know where what our politics will be like down the road, both in terms of uh, you know, traditional party politics and also. Uh, partisanship and uh, and public opinion. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned Florida here as a, as a key element uh, in this election, and it certainly is, because I think where we are in this race at this point is clearly a battle for the Electoral College and, uh, and for in the battleground states of which Florida is a significant one. And it's uh, interesting to me, I was looking at something here recently that you know, obviously Florida has 29 electoral votes and uh, it's a hotly contested, I think you're inside the margin of error right now. And no Republican uh, has been elected president uh, without winning Florida since 1924, that was Calvin Coolidge. And Obama won it twice in 2008 and 2012 and uh, President Trump won it in 2016. So uh, as you as you go forward here, uh, and and the, I think the polls, real, real clear politics, and also uh, five thirty eight have the average polling now close to four percent lead for Biden, which is inside the margin of error, pretty close to it. And the interesting thing about I think about the unique aspect of Florida is that if Biden were to win Florida. Uh, he and he hold the other states that uh, Secretary Clinton won in 2016 would only need to win one of the remaining five major battleground states to get to 270, which is uh, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Arizona. So uh, I maybe got a little off the subject here, but I think uh, you're right at uh, Florida's right at the uh, sort of epicenter of this fight for the Electoral College, which uh, at the moment uh, is really the battle for the White House. What does former Vice President Joe Biden have to do then to, to win Florida and win the election? Well, I think what what he's trying to do here, and the, the big danger I think for uh, for Vice President Biden here is complacency or sitting on his lead or trying to be too comfortable with his lead. I think he's uh, what we saw in 2016, and is that if you're running in a race like this, you got to run full out all the way through the tape on election day, and. He needs to do that, try to avoid any mistakes and just continue to drive toward that ele- toward election day. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, there's, you know, what, while this election is still far from over, President Trump needs a momentum changer. But there is a scenario, there is a narrow window for him and a scenario for him to win, because what could happen here 
is if you sort of extrapolate on 2016, is that uh, you know uh, it's it's possible, conceivable that Vice President Biden can get a higher popular vote than uh, Secretary Clinton got in uh, 2016 when she won the popular vote by 2% by running up margins in some de traditionally democratic states like California, Maryland, uh, Massachusetts, uh, in, uh, exceeding uh, Obama and Clinton's vote totals in states like Georgia and Texas, but not winning them. Uh, and so he can drive up his popular vote, but he's inside the mark, he's ahead, but inside the margin era in many of the battleground states. So there's still, if President Trump's theory is right, that there's a latent vote out there that he can uh, activate in some of these more Republican leaning battleground states. You know, it's conceivable that he could do again in 2020 what he did in 2016. This election is also in some ways seen as a referendum on the president and the White House's handling of the pandemic. And I want to talk a little bit about crisis and how um, different administrations have responded to crises. Now, each of you have served in administrations that have obviously been faced with great challenges. And I want to ask about the secret to success. And beginning with you, Andrew Carter, I mean, you are the guy in that photo whispering into the ear of President George W. Bush as he read to a, a school kids on the morning of 9-11. I want to just kind of talk about that moment, if I could for a moment, and go back to it and, and if you could explain you know what you'd been told at that point and what the kind of calculus in your mind was of how much do I tell the president and where do we go from here well the president woke up it was a perfect day in, in the law of 48 there literally was not a cloud in the sky in the entire law of 48 it was a great day and he woke up and he was focused on his number one priority, which was leaving no child behind in education and education reform. And he was going to be going to an elementary school. I remember he woke up at the Colony Resort in, in Sarasota, Florida, and he was going out for a run on a golf course. He invited a reporter to go running with him, Stretch Kyle. And he found out that reporter had been an NCAA All-American cross-country runner. So he was angry that he invited this outstanding runner to go running with him because the bushes are all really competitive. And he didn't want to lose to him. That's what he was focused on that morning. And I said, when you get back from the run, we're going over to the Army Booker School. It should be an easy day. You're going to be talking about your favorite topic, education, and leaving no children behind in education. So that was how the day started as we were piling into the limousine after the president had gone for his run and he beat Stretch Kyle and he had that George W. Bush strut. Uh, we were piling into limousines and I remember two people asked a question, anybody hear about a plane crash in New York City? One was Kyle Rove, the other one was Dan Bartlett. We piled into the limousines, we got to the M.A. Booker School, went into a classroom that had been converted into a White House command center. The president went to a secure phone and talked to Condoleezza Rice, his national security advisor. I went into the classroom where they knew the president was going to be meeting with students. And I saw the students lined up. They were second graders and they were all very attentive and really excited about what they were doing. And and then I remember seeing the press pool gathering with Ari Fleischer. I checked the room out and and then stood back into the went back into the holding room. And I'm standing at the door to the classroom with the president and the principal of the school when a Navy captain by the name of Deb Lauer, who went on to become an admiral and was the acting national security advisor on the trip. She was the, in charge of the White House Situation Room. She said to the president, sir, it appears a small twin engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers at the World Trade Center in New York City. 
The president, the principal, and I all had the same reaction. Oh, what a horrible accident. The pilot must have had a heart attack or something. And then the principal opened the door to the classroom, and she and the president went into the classroom. The door shut. I was still standing inside that holding room, and Captain Lauer came up to me and said, Sir, it appears it was not a small twin-engine prop plane. It was a commercial jetliner. My mind flashed to the fear that the passengers on the plane must have had. They had to know it wasn't gaining altitude. I don't know why that's where my mind went, but that's where it went. But that was only a nanosecond because Captain Lauer came up to me and said, Oh, my gosh. Another plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center. I knew then that it was not an accident and not a coincidence. I did flash to three initials, UBL, Osama bin Laden. I knew about the attacks on the World Trade Center in 1992-93, and I knew about Osama bin Laden. And so I thought about him. And then I performed a test that chiefs of staff have to perform all the time. I'm sure Peter had to do it many times. Does the president need to know? Uh, it's amazing how many times you have to pass that test, and sometimes you get it wrong. This was an easy test to pass. Yes, he needs to know. I made a conscious decision to pass on two facts, make one editorial comment, and to do nothing to invite a discussion or a question, because I presumed he was sitting underneath a boom microphone. I knew he was sitting in front of students, and I knew that the press pool was right there. I opened the door to the classroom after thinking about what I would tell him. I stepped into the room. The teacher was conducting a dialogue between the students and the president. I didn't want to interrupt that dialogue. The president did not see me come in from behind. Ann Compton with the press pool from ABC looked at me and she gestures, what's up? I gestured back two planes and she gestures back. And then the teacher told the students to take out their book, My Pet Goat. They were going to read with the president. And I walked up to the president, leaned down. He never turned around and looked at me. He did look toward me. And I leaned down and I whispered into his right ear, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. I was very impressed with how he reacted. He did not ask me a question or turn around. He just focused on, I think, what I had told him. I believe that was the moment he realized the terrible burden the presidents carry, and that's the burden of their oath to preserve, protect, and defend. And I was very impressed that he did nothing to introduce fear to those young kids and also didn't demonstrate any fear to the media that would have translated it to the satisfaction of the terrorists all around the world. I knew when I whispered in his ear, his presidency had changed. Uh, and I then stepped back. I went to the door. I looked at him again. I could see his head bobbing up and down. I could see the press pool was all turned around talking to Ari Fleischer. I saw the teacher was very focused on the students. The students were very focused on their books. And then I saw Rod Page, the secretary of education and the principal of the school, they're kind of mouthing what's up. I was very pleased that the president stayed there. He gave me a chance to get ready for the president to make tough, tough decisions. I walked into the holding room. The first thing I said was get the FBI director on the phone, Bob Mueller. He'd only been the FBI director for about 10 days. I, I also uh, told the crew to get back on Air Force One that we were going to have to get ready to leave. Told the Secret Service to turn the motorcade around. We'd get ready to go. I went to Dan Bartlett. I said, we need some remarks written for people in the gymnasium. The president will have to say something to him. We cannot have him say anything that we do not know to be the truth. The president then came into the holding room, and the first thing he called for was get the FBI director on the phone. We could say he's right here. I tell you that story 
because it is an iconic photograph of me whispering in the president's ear. I am not iconic. It does define a, a, an era that changed the world. It certainly changed America. And we are still living with those changes. So I plead with people, we all promised never to forget that day, especially the 2,977 people who died that day, and all of the policemen and firemen and rescue workers that answered the call to duty, and then the thousands of people who answered the call to duty for our country. So never forget, I won't forget, and I was proud to watch the president uh, meet unbelievable responsibilities. My job as chief of staff was not to be emotional, to make sure that he had good advice and counsel, was challenged to, when he made his decisions to second guess them before he made them so that he was confident. And I was very impressed with how he led uh, not only that day, but in the subsequent many months as we did go to war and we're still at war. Thank you for asking, Matthew. I feel an obligation to tell that story and remind everyone that we promised we'd never forget. Thanks uh, for your reminiscence there, Andrew, and you talk about the, the profound change it wrought on this country and, and the presidency, but but clearly um, a pivotal moment for yourself as well. Uh, Peter Rouse, I wanted to ask you about, I guess, a different kind of crisis, because when President Barack Obama took office, he in some ways was walking into a kind of a slow rolling crisis, right? The um, economic collapse, the, the Great Recession, I'm wondering, I mean, are the different skills you need to bring to bear to, to deal with a crisis of, of that nature versus the one we just discussed, the, um, the September 11th attack? How do you see those two kind of different factors? Well, um, you know, every time I hear uh, Andy talk about that day in, uh, in uh, 2001, it sends chills up my spine and, uh, you know, how President Bush reacted to that and how Andy and his team reacted to that. Uh, they deserve a tremendous amount of credit for uh, how they presented this to the nation and moved forward. So, uh, like I say, every time I hear Andy talk about this, it really uh, is very moving. So, but in terms of, uh, you know, your question directly here, I think that uh, essentially the bottom line here is the president is the person, uh, no matter what the uh, decision is or the crisis is, uh, the president is the, uh, is the one who sets the tone for this, for it, how he respond. And uh, people, I think, uh, you know, he has advisors, but he, uh, his advisors also take the lead from him on how to respond. And as you say, when, uh, when President Obama took office in two, January 2009, uh, I think uh, we were in the, set, the greatest downturn since the Great Depression. The banking system was on the verge of collapse. We were losing 800,000 jobs a month. Uh, the auto industry was failing. You know, uh, we were fighting two wars. Uh, and uh, here's a guy who uh, had been in the Senate for four years and I guess was in the state legislature before. And I think a lot of people wondered, how is he going to respond to this? And, uh, you know, like Andy, uh, his view of uh, how uh, President Bush responded in, in, to 9-11, you know, I think that uh, President Obama, I, I've always been impressed about how he uh, assembled his team. Uh, solicited a wide uh, variety of viewpoints on, uh, on how to proceed on these many fronts and uh, asked, quite frankly, in these discussions about how to, uh, what our agenda ought to be and how we ought to proceed, what our priorities ought to be, asked some 
really tough economic questions that I certainly uh, wasn't capable of answering uh, and to develop a strategy to go forward. And I think uh, in retrospect, you know, it took longer, but, uh, you know, I think uh, we turned the corner out of that crisis, uh, you know, hopefully as well as we could have and move forward. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, it does come back to the, uh, to the principal, to the president and how he uh, gets his information, evaluates his information and what tone he sets going forward. Still to come, how strong are the institutions of democracy in America? We'll continue the conversation with Peter Rouse and Andrew Card about the transfer of power from one administration to the next. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Let's get back to the conversation with Andrew Card, who is Chief of Staff for President George W. Bush, and Peter Rouse, who is a Counselor and Interim Chief of Staff to President Barack Obama. President Trump has refused to promise a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election, so what can previous contested elections tell us about what we might expect in November? I wanted to talk a little bit about transition of power, and um, of course, you know, the United States prides itself rightfully so on the peaceful transition of power between administrations, but I did want to ask you about a couple of things, one being... Um, some previous elections, transition of power after acrimonious and decisive elections, in particular 2000 and 2008. Um, Peter Rouse, if we could start with you, uh, thinking about 2008 and, and um, that election, just kind of talk us through what that transition of power looked like from your point of view. Yeah, I, I think this is a, obviously a particularly timely topic, given that President Trump has been reluctant to commit to a peaceful transition of power. Uh, and my experience, as you said, was uh, my only experience in, uh, and a practical experience in transition was 2008. Uh, and what, uh, you know, what I would say there is that uh, that was probably as close to a model exercise in a transition as you're going to find as you look back over time. And the tone for transition is set by the outgoing president. And in this case, uh, President Bush deserves tremendous credit for how smooth that transition was and his, and his team. And I remember that from day one, President Bush told his team, and Andy, I'm sure, can elaborate on this, uh, instructed them to be as collaborative and open as possible with the incoming Obama team, and they were. Josh Bolton, who uh, was the chief of staff at the end, a terrific public servant, couldn't have been more generous and cooperative in working with us on facilitating that transition. And in fact, in the, his inaugural address, I believe, uh, President Obama uh, praised uh, President Bush's uh, generosity and cooperative, cooperativeness in facilitating that transition. And I've heard him, President Obama, on a number of occasions afterwards make reference to uh, you know, how uh, instrumental and critical it was uh, and how much, how much credit uh, President Bush deserves for that smooth transition. Now, I wasn't involved in the 2000 transition. I think Andy probably was, but my guess is, or my, uh, and that was the transition from President Clinton to President Bush, was not quite as smooth. But I don't have any real insight into that other than what I've read in the papers. But I will just reiterate that uh, in 2008, uh, the whole Obama team has nothing but gratitude to President Bush and to his people for how they approached that transition. And 
made it uh, very uh, very um, uh, smooth and a very difficult time. And the one thing I would add, you all know, Andy knows about this, that there's only 78 days between the election and when the new president comes in. And for somebody, even though the transition process has been going on, everybody on the campaign has been focused on the, the election, not the transition. And 78 days is not a, a long time to really stand up, effectively stand up uh, uh, a new administration. And uh, it, uh, without the uh, cooperation and facilitation and help of the outgoing administration, that's almost impossible to do. So, uh, but I'd let Andy speak to uh, 2000. And Andrew, uh, tell us about how that looked from your point of view. First, I've been involved in a number of transitions into government and out of government. I actually ran the transition out of government when George H.W. Bush lost his election to Bill Clinton. And that was a very gracious transfer as well. And I think the Bushes collectively, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush uh, kind of had the right playbook for how to do a transition. And one was a hostile takeover and the other one was not. It was just the end of a term. But the transition in 2000 was awkward because the Supreme Court picked the president of the United States. And we had very little time. There was It was actually a blessing for me as the incoming chief of staff because I could spend a lot of time with President George W. Bush before he knew that he was going to be president. And the Klieg lights were all on Florida and hanging chads. And I got to work with him and discover what his particular interests in leadership were like and what people he wanted to work with and help put together his cabinet. So we, we were blessed to have a lot of time to work not standing in front of a Klieg light as we got ready for a very, very short transition from the time the Supreme Court said George W. Bush was president the time he took office. That transition actually went quite well. And I do give credit to President Clinton and his team. They did have some sophomoric jokes, like the, the W's were missing from some of the computers. And, the, and, and, uh, and, and I remember there was one telephone that I know had been super glued into its saddle. But anyway, it, the transition actually went amazingly well, given that it was a very controversial election. And you remember there were members of Congress that refused to call the president the president. So it was a, a challenging time. President Bush deserved credit for reaching out to Congress very early on in his administration and saying that he wanted to work with them. He had been governor of Texas and the lieutenant governor of Texas when he was governor uh, was a very prominent Democrat and taught George W. Bush quite a bit about respecting the other branches of government and the other people and parties. So George W. Bush actually worked very hard at that transition, not to hold a grudge for anyone who didn't su support him or wasn't willing to be part of his team. But transitions are critically important. And there are wonderful people in Washington, D.C. that help make transitions work. Among them are the career bureaucrats serving in government. They understand how important it is to transfer from one president to another president. And I give a lot of credit to the senior executives who are career public servants that recognize that they don't get to pick who they work for. They just work for the president. And so they all do a good job. And there are a lot of institutions that want to help do that in, in Washington, D.C. And 
It's critical that our democracy be the example of what a transition of power looks like. And that's why I'm hoping that the rhetoric around the transition that we might be seeing, and even if it's a transition from Trump's first term to some Trump's second term, I hope that the transition will go well. The world is watching. We want to demonstrate that our democracy can survive elections and move into governance. And there's only one president at a time. And Donald Trump is our president right now. If he's the president again, that will be a transition of sorts because it's likely that he would change a lot of his cabinet members and, and other senior staff members. And that's challenging, but there's likely to be a transition in Congress where the baton is passed from one party leadership to another party leadership, and that's going to be a challenging thing as well. It's very important that we celebrate our democracy right after we vote, not just when we vote, but also in the process of building up a new government. I just wanted to to circle back to what you're talking about now and, and what um, Pete Peter Rouse alluded to President Trump suggesting when asked by reporters that he may not accept the results of the election if it doesn't go in his favour and is also not committed to a peaceful transition of power. Andrew Carter, I mean, how, how unusual is it for us to be contemplating that? Oh, it's, it's virtually unprecedented in our democracy where a president, a sitting president has said that he thinks the results of the election are not likely to be good and therefore he will protest them. Look, at when, when George W. Bush got elected president of the United States and the Supreme Court had to ratify that decision, you found that this country did a remarkable job of saying the transition was going to happen and it would be good. And I do credit the Democrats for recognizing that George W. Bush won in a controversial election and they helped to make his transition smooth and work. Were there lots of arguments over policy and personality and even who should serve in what position? Yes, but that's all right. That's part of democracy working. But uh, Al Gore was very gracious when he said that he lost. And, and that transition was a model one, and it was good for the world to see it. I pray that President Trump, should he lose, uh, accepts the will of the voters and the realities of the electoral college. I, I, even if they're controversial, if if the decision is made and confirmed and is consistent with our constitution, I pray that he will uh, leave office holding his head high with dignity and making sure the baton doesn't get dropped when it's passed. Peter Rouse, how concerned are you about the notion of a president saying that he will not commit to a peaceful transition of power? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, it is uh, very concerning. You know, I think that, uh, you know, uh, to put a a slightly more positive spin on it, if you want to try, you know, uh, you know, we don't really know what, uh, you know, President Trump will do. I mean, he has been, had a history of pushing the envelope of political arguments. And, uh, uh, you know, I think at one point I either heard him say directly or he's been certainly interpreting him saying that if he doesn't win, the election has been rigged and therefore, you know, it's illegitimate. You know, I don't know how much of that is, uh, you know, 
for his base and and to try to position himself politically. I certainly hope not, because I think Andy is is absolutely right. You know, one of the uh, hallmarks of our democracy is a peaceful transition of power. Uh, the 2000 election, as Andy described, was a good case in point. You know, you couldn't get any tighter than that. And, uh, you know, I just hope that there's a certain element of, uh, you know, political rhetoric involved in uh, Trump's argumentation. He's behind right now and he's uh, trying to motivate his people and so forth and so on. And I still hope that if push comes to shove, that if he does lose on November 3rd, and it's clear that he did, uh, that he will accept that and, uh, and you know, and, and we can move forward. But well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. That was Peter Rouse, who is Counselor and Interim Chief of Staff to President Barack Obama, and Andrew Card, who is Chief of Staff for President George W. Bush. And that conversation was part of UCF's Lester N. Mandel Endowed Distinguished Lecture Series, hosted by the University of Central Florida and recorded this week on Zoom. Up next, The Right Stuff was filmed in Central Florida, so what does it mean for the film industry here, and what does the future hold for film and television amid the pandemic? We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The Right Stuff, a series based on the book by Tom Wolfe about the early days of American space exploration, just launched on Disney+. Viewers will recognise key locations shot around central Florida during filming late last year. I spoke with Orlando Film Commissioner Sheena Fowler about what the series means for the future of the film industry in the face of the pandemic. Sheena Fowler is the Orlando Film Commissioner. Sheena, nice to see you again and nice to speak to you again. Hi there, how are you? Very good. So, uh... The Right Stuff is a story that I think a lot of people may be familiar with from the book or the film that came out uh, a few decades ago now, but this is a new iteration of it. Um, It's on Disney+. Plus. It just launched, and it's generating quite a bit of buzz, obviously because it's a great story and because of the local connection, right? It's all about things that happened on the Space Coast. Tell me about what the Orlando Film Commission you know, had to do to to kind of get involved and sort of how that whole process went down? It's an interesting process when we start to talk about recruiting different films and television series to our state, especially in the absence of an incentive program. We're now digging into really the nitty gritty of how do we lower the budget? And as we start to dig into that, that's our that's our selling point for these studios is let's work with you on every single detail. So you're going to be able to recognize the full value of production in the state of Florida that we're convinced of. But the industry really turned to incentive programs over the last decade. So we had to work with the production company to help them understand how we could help lower their budget and really pull all of the community partners together to put together a really compelling package to make sure that they would be able to get everything here. When did that process start? Oh, a few years ago. <laughs> These things don't come together quickly at all. You know, there's there's lots of decision points. And um, so we started speaking with the studios probably three, four years ago on the potential of this. And at the time, it Disney Plus wasn't in the picture, right? It was a National Geographic series that we were working on. And it was far-fetched that it would come to Florida. We really anticipated that we would get the traditional that we've gotten over the last few years, where they'll film in a state that has an incentive, but they'll come to the Cape for a few days to get that really authentic look. 
but the leave. And we were really proud to see that they were able to measure out the full volume of what they could get in the state of Florida and headquarter the whole thing here. One of the big stories that we've covered at WMFE and that obviously the Film Commission and other people involved in the film industry have been pushing in the last few years has been the need to get some kind of incentives back, right? Because those incentives went away and then the argument has been that, look, if we don't have these, we aren't going to be able to compete with the likes of Georgia and attract those film projects, whether they're for streaming projects or or films or, or television back to the state of Florida. So like what does what does getting the right stuff here in central florida mean like how how big of a win is this for the film commission and for film in general this was a huge win and let me tell you it's it every project is a win right but what's really special about this one is that it's on the heels of the series david makes man that was on oprah winfrey network and now on hbo max So when you look at having both of those series in Central Florida at the same time, now we're looking at close to a full year of employment for freelancers that are working on these projects. That's what Orlando's production industry was built on. We had the studio system. We had, in the 90s, that was our big boom, right? And we were doing a lot of television series. And so we built up the infrastructure, and that's how we've been able to survive through all of these years, is building off of the fact that we have the rental facilities, we have the crew base, and then we have a large number of talent, of actors in the community that are able to step forward. So when you have all of that infrastructure, you're able to lower the bottom line and other states really that tried to get in the incentive game but didn't have any infrastructure to back them up, those are the ones that struggled. We were able to maintain by building in commercials and be able to continue through. So when we got the opportunity to get two back-to-back series, it, it really went back to normal the way that we were supposed to be set up. And that's the important part is that we were able to provide employment for our local crew members that was more consistent than something they've been used to. I know sometimes, um, you know, economic projections or economic impact, it's, it's the science is a bit fuzzy, right? But can you put a number on this in terms of jobs and economic impact to Central Florida? Yeah, it was a really impressive number. We we haven't gotten clearance to share it, but it was one of the largest projects that we've had in the community in some time. Certainly, and I'm just hit 11 years in this office, and it's one of the highest local spends that I've seen, which was extraordinary that we were able to get our crew employed. We were able to use local lumber yards. We were able to, all the gas stations and and groceries and food that goes to the set. I think that's the real impact that people don't get to see because it's usually locked behind gates or are on some location. You don't see the full impact of what goes into putting these on. And when you look at a, a series like The Right Stuff, that's a period piece oh my goodness, now we're looking at all sorts of additional elements with costuming and makeup. That was some really additional, and, and cars. If, you, if you've seen it, the, the volume of picture cars that are vintage are just extraordinary. So we had to work with them to find local vendors for all of those teeny tiny little details, but that's the movie magic that makes it come together and, and you escape from where you are and you're transported back into the 50s and 60s when the space race was taking place. So talk me through some of the highlights, like what are people seeing? Like what are some of the places people will recognize, uh, or, you know, maybe places they hadn't thought that, okay, this is something that was there since the 50s and 60s and, and might be a bit of a surprise to viewers? Sure. Well, 
there's no doubt that the showstopper piece is the Space Center. And getting to feature that authentic location is really something that we're always extraordinarily proud to do in the state of Florida. And I'm so thankful that we've been able to preserve those rooms so that you can see what it was really like in action. Uh, but some of the places around Orlando, there's some scenes that you'll start to see popping up that were in the Church Street Station. Now, these aren't authentic locations that they were actually in. These are, are set pieces where we're dressing them up to look in the period. But it's extraordinary as you start to track through all the different locations that you'll start to recognize Orlando throughout the entire series. So in the course of reporting about the film industry and incentives and the need for some more support from the state uh, to, to kind of help keep that industry thriving in Florida, I've spoken to people in the past who've been worried about what's going to happen to their jobs, whether they might have to move out of state. Did this project allow some of those folks to stay put or did it attract some people back if they may have you know, gone to, say, Georgia or one of the other places where there's been you know, a more solid kind of infrastructure and, and footing financial footing for, for that film industry? Sure. And I think that's the, the, the silver lining of the fact that Georgia became such a hot spot for production is that it's not that far from Florida. Right. And so our crew base has been able to go back and forth. This certainly drew back quite a few crew members that were able to come home to film. Uh, many of them have not let go on Florida being their primary residence. This is where they want to live. This is where they're paying their mortgage. This is where their kids are in school, but they have to sustain work. And so thankfully we have enough of our commercial industry that has been able to employ folks. But this is this is the good stuff, right? The, the episodic television where you're really getting into some of the creative is where a lot of our experienced crew base loves to live. So a lot of them came back for this, but the, the goal, as I said before, is to employ consistency. That's what we're going for. I'm, I'm not necessarily interested as a film commission in getting one-off big budget pictures. That's, that's not interesting for me. I want consistent employment for our workforce because that's what they deserve. That's what they're capable of. And as long as we can continue to showcase that we're capable of pulling things off at this caliber, I think that's what California was watching. The studio systems were curious. Could we pull this off at the quality level that was necessary for this. And as you start to watch it, you'll see there's no doubt this is superior quality. Does a project like this have a long tail or, or once they wrap up filming and move on, is that it? You know, the tail end is that our businesses, our small businesses that we really needed that injection of cash, no one could have anticipated what 2020 had, but I'm really proud that this production was able to give an injection into those small businesses before they got hit so hard. The The crew base has jumped over to David Makes Man that we're looking forward to opening up soon. And now we're in the waiting period of now that the, the series has launched, really waiting to see what's going to happen with season two. Is is it going to go? Is it going to be here? And that's where we're, we're holding our breath a bit because we would love to welcome this production back. And I, I cannot say enough what this meant to our crew base that was here, but also they were able to partner with some of the schools. So Full Sail University was able to get some students to shadow this type of production. This is something that that film students really dream of. This was pure Hollywood production. 
that they wanted to get their toes wet. And they did. They got to see what it really looked like and understand that this is the production industry that they were going into. So it was exciting to see that we not only got our professionals employed, but we got the next generation of filmmakers and crew base able to get involved and understand that this is a career that they can take forward. If you're just joining me, my guest is Sheena Fowler. She's the Orlando Film Commissioner. We're talking about the filming of the right stuff and what that means for the Central Florida film and television industry. So, Sheena, um, obviously 2020 has hit every single industry across the entire nation, across the world in different ways, right? And people are trying to figure out how to you know, keep the businesses going. New businesses have sprung up. Some businesses have been forced to shut down completely or, or kind of trim back and do things differently. Um, one thing that the mayor of Orange County noted uh, in remarks this week talking about the NBA was that that was a success story in terms of there were no reported infections amongst staff or players. So, uh, you know, that shows that they can pull off a major event like that. Are there some parallels? I mean, I'm wondering what is going through your mind thinking about what the future holds and how do you sort of think the, the, the future of the film industry may look, you know, if we're, we're still in pandemic midway through 2021, like how do you kind of pitch projects and, and sort of say, this is something we can do safely and, and we can get something done successfully despite everything that's going on? Well, it was certainly a wild ride to figure it all out with everybody else. And, and I'm thankful that our film commissioners across the state of Florida have great relationships. So we're able to share in times of need, best practices. We communicated quite a bit. Um, and I was on the phone too with film commissioners from around the country and around the world, trying to figure out what, what do we need to do? The NBA certainly rose as a best practice in terms of the bubbling. And so we, we deployed a lot of that with our producers. And I think there's no other industry in any, Yes, the NBA was a big part of it, but the broadcast was a big part of, of the NBA, right, of, of getting that footage out. And so when you see production people go into work, they are exceptional at following directions and being diligent. So I had to figure out with all of the jurisdictions across Central Florida, and it's 60 plus, it's quite a bit, we all put our heads together to really figure out what is the best way to do this safely. And there were some crew that that was not ready to come out and, and work yet. And that is perfectly understandable. We wanted to keep everyone safe. But for those that were ready to work, we had projects that were interested in bringing projects to our community. And so we took them one by one, slowly and carefully. And thankfully, we have extraordinary vendors that were able to come through with cleaning crews. Um, and really, my other role at the partnership is I oversee tech and innovation strategies. So I was able to pull some relationships that we have with biotechnology cleaning companies that had gotten into COVID space that were ready to be nimble with the production industry. And that became an extraordinary win for us. And we had some wonderful mobile testing that was able to come out and do rapid testing so that we could employ these things. But I would be naive to say it's, this was not easy. It was not cheap either. You know, in order to do this right, and, and the NBA bubble is a, a great example of it, it costs a lot of money to do it safely. And we all had to temper our expectations of timelines to make sure that we were able to do this as safely as possible. And I'm, I'm really proud of our community because they stepped up and it, it wasn't very quickly everyone realized this was not something that just the film commission had to mandate. 
it was something that every single crew member as specialists in what they do on set had to come in and collaborate on. You know, everybody pulled in and said, we could do this safer. We could clean this better. And through that really collaborative process, we were able to have a lot of really successful and healthy projects through the beginning of this year because California was closed, New York was closed, Miami and um, really struggled to get back up. And, and thankfully they got a great process in place too. So we were filming some really big budget commercials when there, there were very limited places across the United States and we did it safely. It was, it was a wonder to see that the collaboration worked. Sheena, um, thinking about some of the headlines over the last few weeks, uh, you know, one of them which, which stands out, it's, it's not a good one, of course, as, as many of these headlines are when you're thinking about jobs and the economy is, you know, Regal Cinema is saying they're, they're basically going to have to shut their doors. As a film commissioner, that must be a bit scary, kind of reading that and thinking, okay, what next? What does the future hold? Yeah, it's that is heartbreaking. I'm I am a big fan of the shared experience of cinema, and it's evolving. And I think that's something that our economy and our world is going to have to wrap our heads around. Is that these shared experiences have been evolving for quite a bit since streaming took such a, a front and center role, but I've seen a lot of our drive-in theaters have a renaissance. This is something that they were really struggling to get people out for, um, let's say, decades. <laughs> and now they're packed and they're revived. And it's it's difficult to see the cheese move, but that's something that we work with with our workforce quite a bit. We're always trying to help them understand what trends are coming on, where are you going to see disruption in your industry, and how can we help you be best prepared to evolve with it. And that's one of the things that I think is exceptional about the, the Central Florida and Orlando region is that we have so much production that takes place that's not just purely entertainment based. When you look at our concentration of simulation and virtual reality and augmented reality, a lot of that takes many significant players from the entertainment space. These are producers and actors. And so there's a lot of parallels there that we've been able to leverage our game development community. How do we start to merge those together so that when you look at Orlando as a production center, it's not just on commercials, television series, and movies. This is now into game development. This is in our virtual reality experiences. And brands are going to be able to see Orlando as a destination for all of their production needs, not just those that are going to go onto the screens. Well, Sheena Fowler is the Orlando Film Commissioner. Thanks so much for your time, Sheena. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having us on. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us online at wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. And thanks for listening. 